Welcome to Healthy vs. Toxic, the podcast where licensed mental health professionals explore what makes a relationship healthy or unhealthy or even abusive, all from a scientifically informed perspective. Hello, this is Dr. Grande. Today's question asks, what if both people in a romantic relationship are narcissistic? So that's kind of the overarching question, but then I see some more specific questions related to this. Are two narcissists more likely to find each other and become a couple? I've also seen the same question worded with the term dark triad traits instead of narcissism. So are two people with dark triad traits more likely to find each other and become a couple? Another question here related to narcissism would be, what would that relationship look like? Would it succeed? And what about the different types of narcissism, meaning grandiose versus vulnerable? How do they relate to one another in terms of the success and failure of this type of relationship. So on the first question here, are they more likely to become a couple? Are two narcissists more likely to become a couple? Well, to understand this, we have to understand the idea of what's called non-random coupling, also referred to as assortive mating. Positive assortment is when people who are similar become couples. So in short, people that are like one another. Negative assortment is when the characteristics of each person in the couple are complementary, in short, opposites. Another way to put this is similarity versus complementarity. Now, we know in romantic relationships there is a lot of evidence for positive assortment. We see positive assortment around variables like age, political preference, religious beliefs, education, intelligence, values, and personality traits. The most relevant of those Categories to this question around narcissism, of course, would be the personality traits. If we look at the five-factor model of personality, we see the strongest positive assortment around openness, then agreeableness, conscientiousness, and eroticism. Interestingly, we don't see consistent findings around the trait of extroversion. So what does this mean? Well, in terms of the five-factor model, it means that if a person is high in openness, for instance, we would expect them to pair with somebody who is also high in openness. So with this particular trait, when you have somebody who's high in openness to experience paired with somebody who's low in openness to experience, both people typically end up feeling kind of lonely. Now, in terms of extroversion, this means that if a person is extroverted, we don't know who they would end up with. We don't know who they would be attracted to. It could be an extrovert or it could be an introvert. In terms of mental health, we also see positive assortment. For example, we see positive assortment with certain disorders like major depressive disorder, bipolar disorder, with characteristics like psychoticism, substance use, and antisocial behaviors. So now specifically kind of zeroing in on psychopathy, which is strongly related to antisocial behavior, we see that men who are high in psychopathy tend to rate highly psychopathic women as desirable mothers, and women who are psychopathic have a greater attraction to men who are highly psychopathic for both short-term and long-term relationships. So are people with dark triad traits attracted to other people with dark triad traits? The answer to this question is yes. The strongest positive assortment is with Machiavellianism, then psychopathy, and then narcissism. But all three do see this positive assortment. Another question here would be, what about initial assortment versus convergence? So what does this mean? Well, initial assortment means that the couple came together, but the traits that they had were already present in the beginning of the relationship, right? So 
They didn't develop the traits later on. Convergence means that they became more similar over time. So maybe one person was a little bit narcissistic, and the other person was a lot narcissistic, and the person with a lower level of narcissistic traits kind of moved toward a more narcissistic position in terms of personality. That's convergence. So which concept kind of wins out here when we talk about two people who are narcissistic? Well, it's initial assortment. However, being around someone who's narcissistic may make it easier to express narcissistic traits. It can serve to normalize that behavior. So in general, people bring the personality constructs, their personality levels, into the relationship. They don't change too much afterward, but they may change a little bit. So both initial assortment and convergence can play a role, but we put more weight on the idea of initial assortment. So what would a relationship between two narcissists really be like? This really also connects to that question about grandiose versus vulnerable narcissism. So let's take a look at those constructs. Both types of narcissism are characterized by a sense of entitlement, self-centeredness, a need for admiration, and being low on the agreeableness trait, so being disagreeable or antagonistic. Grandiose narcissism has characteristics like being high in extroversion, low in neuroticism, being arrogant, socially bold, self-confident, having superficial charm, being resistant to criticism, callous, unemotional, and optimistic. Vulnerable narcissism has characteristics like being low in extroversion, high in eroticism, tending to be resentful, distrusting, insecure, having a lot of shame, being hypersensitive to criticism, being socially awkward, and pessimistic. So essentially, that really leaves us with three combinations if we look at a glance here. Both people in the relationship have grandiose narcissism, both have vulnerable, or one has grandiose and one has vulnerable. Now, narcissistic traits, though, are on a continuum. Many narcissists would be in the middle between grandiose and vulnerable. So I'll add a fourth category here where I'll talk about just general narcissism, the general traits we see with narcissism. Now, as I talk about the subject matter and talk about the two people in the relationship, this can get a little confusing to kind of follow who's who. So just to make this a little bit easier, I'm going to refer to one person as person A, right? One person in this relationship will be person A, and the other person will be person B. It just kind of clarifies a little bit in certain situations. So starting with a couple who are both grandiose narcissists, we see a number of factors of grandiose narcissism that come into play here. Let's start with resistance to criticism. In a sense, both people in this couple are going to be immune from each other's criticism. Both are going to criticize a lot, but again, both will be immune. So in a strange way, Imagine being in a relationship where you only hear the good things that your partner says to you, right? So in a way, that can actually be positive. You're not hearing any criticism. You're only hearing what you want to hear. So the relationship may tend to be a little bit more successful, or at least that's how it may appear. Another key characteristic here is the optimism. Both people are going to think that the future is bright, and that's going to contribute to success. We also see high extroversion. This is associated with positive emotions. So both people will tend to have positive feelings. Now, how about the lack of empathy? This actually works a little bit differently. This works against the couple because even though person A would not have empathy for person B, they would expect person B to have empathy for them, right? So this kind of leads to disappointment. The narcissist expects from other people what the narcissist cannot give to other people. Now, another interesting factor here is grandiosity. Person A's grandiosity can actually help 
person B. It can make person B feel confident in their choice. They chose a winner. They chose somebody who is very important. So during times when person B may feel challenged about their own worth, they can always lean on the belief that they are great because they chose a great person in the person of person A. So they are great by association. So in a sense, the relationship between two grandiose narcissists is a relationship without sensitivity, depth, or complete love because it lacks true intimacy. The two people live with one another. They represent themselves as a couple, but the relationship is shallow. And in many ways, they really function as individuals and not as a couple. Even still, this couple could actually stay together for quite a while and consider the relationship to be healthy in a number of ways. So what about the relationship that has two vulnerable narcissists? Well, here we see two people who criticize each other a lot, and they're very hurt by each other's criticisms. So this is not good. This is not conducive to a positive relationship. Both people here are insecure in the relationship. They never forgive each other. They're pessimistic, and neither are good in social situations. So in this type of relationship, the couple really doesn't have a lot going for them. These relationships are at a moderate risk of failure. Interestingly, though, I've seen exceptions to this, right? Sometimes people are so insecure, even when they're unhappy, they stay together. There's a dependent quality to vulnerable narcissism. If both people are afraid to be alone, who is going to have the courage to leave the relationship? Again, even if both people are really miserable. So these relationships can really go either way in terms of whether or not the couple stays together. So what about a situation where one person's grandiose and the other person's vulnerable in terms of narcissism? So let's say the person A has grandiose traits and person B has vulnerable traits. Well, here we see that person B suffers. They bring chaos to the relationship. They are emotionally unstable. And generally speaking, person A is oblivious to all this. It's more like a nuisance as opposed to a real concern for person A. Person B delivers a lot of criticism, but person A is resistant to criticism. So this couple will argue and fight a lot, but they may stay together even though they consider themselves to be in a dysfunctional relationship. So what about a couple that simply has general narcissistic traits, right? So just looking at this question without looking specifically at grandiose or vulnerable. Well, one of the factors here that would stand out would be the fantasies of success and power. The fantasies can actually help a couple to meet each other's goals because the fantasies may align. And this can actually be a little bit dangerous if the fantasies have a criminal or otherwise harmful component to them. If the fantasies don't align, person A's fantasy may still help person B because person B may invest in the fantasy of person A. Person B could latch on to person A's fantasy. So that fantasy could still reinforce the idea that person B is special. It could give them a sense of power. It could satisfy their need for admiration. So in a sense, person B can live vicariously through person A's fantasy. In the event that person B does not believe or invest in person A's fantasy, person A still benefits because at least person B values the idea of having a fantasy in general, because person B has their own fantasy, so they can appreciate that someone would have those types of fantasies of power, success, and brilliance, and all that. So the last item here under narcissistic traits would be the low agreeableness, being disagreeable and antagonistic. 
All other things being equal, if two people are disagreeable, they're going to argue a lot. They will have trouble coming to a consensus on important decisions, and the constant fighting will take a toll on the relationship. So overall, when two narcissists are together in a romantic relationship, the relationship's success or failure depends on which characteristics we see in each person and how strongly those characteristics manifest. Whether the couple stays together for a long time or they don't, these relationships would not generally be thought of as healthy in a traditional sense, sometimes referred to as toxic. And typically, they do represent a significant challenge for counselors trying to treat the couple. Among the many things that make this challenging would be this idea that each person in this couple would only present goals that help them. So, like in a counseling situation, person A is saying, I want this and that and everything else that helps me, and person B is really saying the same thing, right? All their goals point back to them. So again, you have two people in a relationship in front of you, but the people seem separated, right? Everything in their life is really separate. Separate goals, separate ambitions, separate sets of motivation. Nothing is really joined together. So again, they represent themselves as a couple, but in a lot of ways, two people who are narcissistic aren't really a couple at all. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Do narcissists deliberately cause romantic partners to be jealous? So this is an interesting question. I've heard many versions of this question over the last few months. And I found a study that really directly looks at this question. It was published in 2017 by Tortorello and colleagues. I'll put the reference to this article in the description for this video. So they really looked at this concept of jealousy induction, and they looked at it across both vulnerable and grandiose narcissism. So first, real quickly, I'll go over the construct of narcissism. I've covered this before a lot of times, so I'll just give a brief overview here. So narcissistic personality disorder has a number of characteristics. It's an official diagnosis in the DSM, and it's different than grandiose and vulnerable narcissism which are constructs that are studied. So NPD, the disorder, is in fact a disorder, whereas grandiose and vulnerable narcissism, again, are just constructs we measure and study and we look for relationships with them. So NPD has symptoms like a sense of entitlement, having fantasies of success, manipulating other people, 
being arrogant, lacking empathy. And we see with grandiose narcissism, a lot of the characteristics there are shared. So NPD is quite similar to grandiose narcissism. With grandiose narcissism, we would also see social dominance and assertiveness. So one way we could think about it is when we look at the term narcissism, somebody who has grandiose narcissism would probably appear narcissistic to most people right away because of that arrogant behavior and being condescending. Now, vulnerable narcissism isn't really captured well at all by the mental disorder NPD. We see characteristics with vulnerable narcissism like insecurity, having shame proneness, which means somebody has a tendency to experience shame, being hypersensitive, sad, and shy. Now, the narcissistic characteristics in terms of what we think of with grandiose narcissism are still there, but they would tend to manifest in the long run in terms of people's observations. So initially, some of the vulnerable narcissism, what people would notice there is probably the shyness and insecurity and not really the arrogance. That would come from knowing the person for a while, potentially. So some key differences there between grandiose and vulnerable narcissism. Another construct that was looked at in this paper that was measured is called Machiavellianism. Now, this is a subclinical construct, meaning that at no level does it lead to psychopathology. There's no diagnosis that goes along with Machiavellianism like there is for grandiose narcissism. Again, NPD is an extreme manifestation of grandiose narcissism. So with Machiavellianism, we see characteristics like being deliberately manipulative, having good long-term planning skills, so being strategic, and also having good impulse control. Again, it's subclinical. Oftentimes, we do see it along with grandiose and vulnerable narcissism. There's also a theory I've talked about many times before in other videos called the dark triad, which is narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism all at the subclinical level. So there's some overlap between those constructs and what I'm talking about here with jealousy induction. So what's interesting here when we talk about romantic relationships and narcissism is that both grandiose and vulnerable narcissists do tend to have a tendency to express interest in alternative mates. So in the context of a romantic relationship, they're looking at other people and they're making that known to their partner. So the question here really is, is this behavior strategic? Are they deliberately causing jealousy? Or is it more something that's accidental or impulsive? So some examples of expressing interest in alternatives and the jealousy induction would be flirting, pursuing attractive alternatives, also known as cheating. We also see discussing attractive alternatives. Now, we have to be careful here because this behavior is not unusual. We're talking about really over-discussing attractive alternatives. So if a couple is watching a movie, let's say it's a man and a woman, and the man is the one who's narcissistic. If they're watching a movie and there's an attractive actress in the movie and the man comments on that attractiveness, that's not really discussing attractive alternatives like we see when we talk about examples of jealousy induction. It would be something more drawn out and with more detail. So presuming it's a husband and wife that I'm talking about here, say the wife has a friend and the husband is attracted to that friend and many days out of the week, maybe most days, kind of goes on and on about how attractive that person is. That's really more jealousy inducing than casually mentioning attractiveness. Another example of jealousy inducing behavior would be appearing uncommitted or casual in a relationship. 
So making it seem like the relationship isn't that important, that a person can be easily replaced, that at any time an individual could just leave, all those are really jealousy-inducing behaviors. So looking at prior research, we see five motives for jealousy-inducing behaviors that are theorized. So the first one would be to gain power or control. So somebody induces jealousy to control that relationship, to gain power in a romantic relationship. The second one's a little more direct. It's to get revenge. So we see this, of course, in relationships that don't involve narcissism as well. But somebody expresses an interest in alternatives or appears uncommitted or flirts just to get revenge. The third one is to test the relationship or even to strengthen the relationship. Of course, those are two different constructs, but they're kind of included under the same motive here. Then we see looking for security. So someone flirts and mentions other attractive people in an effort to see if that person, see if their partner will build security with them. So kind of similar to the testing the relationship one. And then we see compensating for low self-esteem. So somebody doesn't feel good about themselves, so they induce jealousy, and that helps their self-esteem because now their partner is paying more attention to them. So you could divide these motives up in really two categories. Offensive, which would be the gaining power and control, and the getting revenge. So this is when somebody is on the offense. And defensive, and that would be testing the relationship, looking for security, and compensating for low self-esteem. So coming into a study like this, the hypothesis would be that the offensive motives, again, power and control and revenge, would be aligned with grandiose narcissism. Based on what we know about grandiose narcissism, that does seem to make sense. And that vulnerable narcissism would be aligned with all five, so both the offensive and the defensive. So that was the theory kind of coming into this study. So there are a number of different theories that could be tested here, and that's what happened in the study, and there were some interesting results. Some results that I think, to me anyway, were a bit surprising, and I'll talk more about that in a few moments. So there's this theory around grandiose narcissism, that individuals who are grandiose narcissists tend to hide insecurity behind this wall of confidence, this artificial built-up wall of confidence. And what they found here, in terms of jealousy induction anyway, and, and the motives for that, is that grandiose narcissism was only related to gaining power. Again, in terms of motives. It was also, of course, related to Machiavellianism, that's not surprising, and it was positively correlated with self-esteem, but it was not related to revenge. Another popular theory, of course, is that grandiose narcissists engage in revenge more often than people that don't have grandiose narcissism. And of course, revenge is consistent with that insecurity behind confidence theory. So there are a few different theories about why an association between revenge and grandiose narcissism was not identified here. It could be that revenge doesn't come out in a romantic context. Maybe the revenge comes out in other ways. It could also be that it's not manifested through jealousy induction, right? So if somebody wants revenge, they may not try to make their partner jealous. They may use other means. They may be emotionally abusive or physically abusive or something like that, but they wouldn't exact revenge through jealousy induction. Now, it's interesting because, as I talked about, grandiose narcissism does have a fairly strong relationship to revenge, especially after a disturbance in a relationship like infidelity. We see 
fairly good evidence that says that grandiose narcissists would tend to seek revenge after cheating, after their partner cheats. But again, we don't see that here, so it's a little bit of a mystery as to why that finding occurred. So we see this debate in narcissism about behavior and how deliberate it is. And you could call this the tactical versus impulsive debate. So are narcissists harmful or do they engage in behaviors like jealousy induction, other behaviors tactically, strategically, or because of impulsivity, because of a failure to restrain negative emotions? We call this negative urgency when somebody gives in to negative emotions and it's a facet of impulsivity. Well, this study, at least in terms of jealousy induction, really leaned more toward the strategic, more toward the tactical, suggesting the behaviors were done on purpose to achieve a goal rather than as a product of impulsivity. So they weren't done, the behaviors weren't done because of giving in to strong emotions, but rather planned out. Again, really looking more like Machiavellianism. So that was an interesting finding. The last finding we see here was that vulnerable narcissism was less focused. Grandiose narcissist focused in just on power in terms of the motive, but the vulnerable narcissist actually had all five motives represented. So power control, revenge, testing relationship, looking for security, and compensating for low self-esteem. So the vulnerable narcissistic behavior was more haphazard. Again, less focused, it was spread out over a number of motives and didn't appear to be as strategic as what we saw with grandiose narcissism. Now, of course, the vulnerable narcissism still had that positive association with Machiavellianism. Machiavellianism appears to play a key component here in jealousy induction, but it was related to low self-esteem. So it was negatively correlated with self-esteem. Vulnerable narcissism, as that went up, self-esteem went down. So we see a different pattern of jealousy induction behavior between grandiose and vulnerable narcissism. So I mentioned before that these results surprised me a little bit, and they really did, especially the first couple of results I mentioned there about how grandiose narcissists tend to hide insecurity behind confidence, and their finding here was not consistent with that. And of course, the revenge piece. I did expect the revenge piece to be there for grandiose narcissism. Now, when we conceptualize narcissism, we usually think of an individual has a fragile sense of self, so fragile self-esteem. And the narcissistic behaviors protect that fragile sense of self. The findings from this study really go in the opposite direction. And again, that did surprise me. Now, that doesn't mean this is the end of the discussion and these findings are correct, but it does give an interesting alternative perspective here. Maybe there's something we're missing with our conceptualization in terms of the fragile sense of self. Still tend to believe the fragile sense of self theory, even with these findings in mind, but still it's good to have our beliefs challenged when we are thinking scientifically. We don't want to get dogmatic and inflexible and say, well, something's true just because I believe it's true. We have to be willing to look at new evidence and potentially change our thinking on these different topics. This evidence didn't sway my thinking too much, but again, I found it to be interesting. The second point that really surprised me was the tactical versus impulsive, and I've talked about this before. This finding in this paper around jealousy induction strongly leaned toward 
tactical, strongly lean towards strategic behavior. Now, again, just in this one area, jealousy induction, and this doesn't necessarily indicate that all the narcissistic behaviors would be tactical or strategic, but I still found this to be pretty interesting. A lot of times I do think of narcissistic behaviors as being more unconscious and impulsive. Now, of course, those are similar and different at the same time, right? I mean, the unconscious mind is not the same thing as impulsivity exactly, but there's a lack of awareness potentially with both, especially, of course, with the unconscious mind. And the impulsivity is really driven by emotions. So we can see that neither really have a deliberate strategic component to them. So with this jealousy induction motive piece moving over to tactical, that was surprising. I'm not sure this really changed my mind either, but I think that we have to be open to the possibility here with this finding that some of the behaviors are on purpose, even though they seem to fall under narcissism pretty squarely. And therefore you would think a little bit outside of conscious awareness. And some behaviors, of course, would still be unconscious and occur because of lack of insight and occur because of impulsivity. So again, this just speaks to how scientists can't be dogmatic. We have to be flexible and we have to look at these different findings and weigh all the evidence together. I really like this study. I like this study and the fact that it challenged some of the beliefs I have about narcissism. And of course, these beliefs are held by many people. Many mental health clinicians share my conceptualization, but there's also many mental health clinicians that would share the conceptualization represented in the study. So this really makes for interesting material to kind of move into that debate and that discussion about the true nature of narcissism. I'd be really interested to see your comments on this subject. Everybody's got interesting opinions on narcissism informed from not only science, but from personal experience. And I'm sure that these particular issues, the fragile sense of self issue and the strategic or tactical versus impulsive issue, I think would resonate with a lot of people. I think a lot of people would have opinions one way or the other on these topics. And again, I'd like to see those in the comments. If you could take a few moments and do that, it would certainly be appreciated. There are two things I think we could definitely take away from this paper, regardless of any beliefs in one direction or another. And that would be that narcissism is exceedingly complex and narcissism does tend to have this association with jealousy induction, regardless of why that behavior occurs with narcissism. We do seem to know here. I think we can say that it's well established that this behavior does occur in the context of narcissism. So we might not know why, although this paper offers us some more ideas to work with, but we do know that it happens. This is a characteristic of relationships that involve one or more people that have narcissism. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. The producers for this show are Christopher Breitigan and Madison Linden. The executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. For more content, please visit our website at arslanga.media. To leave feedback or suggestions, send an email to info at arslanga.media. To find more content from Dr. Grande, including a link to his YouTube channel and his other Ars Longa podcasts, visit our website at arslanga.media. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be construed as medical or mental health advice. 
Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.